Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library stay-at-home order podcast. Coming to you from the suburbs of Detroit, close but not close enough to the Walter P. Ruther Library and Wayne State University. I am Dan Galadner, your host today with the ever-present stay-at-home co-producer and tech wizard, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are you doing over there? Oh, I'm hanging in there. I uh, yeah. Working from home is tiring. It can be, can't it? It's like it I'm doing can. a lot more. I uh, I look forward to going back to the office eventually. Oh, just, just to kind of like, you know, goof off some more? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but then you won't have your, your assistant, your your lovely daughter, right? That is true. Yeah. I, I can't wait to get back to the collections too and smell the boxes as well. Miss the Ruther. But we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, we'll be doing podcasts from our basements. And on today's podcast, we are talking with our very own archivist, Megan Courtney. You've all heard her on the podcast before when she's filled in for me when I couldn't be around. And she did such a great job, we thought we needed to talk to her and find out what she does. Now, I am sure some of you have taken that tour through an archive that is just a show and tell. Here's our stuff, but don't touch. Here are neat things, but you have to make an appointment to actually see them. Well, Megan has broken down those walls and she has started some unique programs here at the Ruther Library that has students coming into the archive and using collections to learn what an archive is and how they can use archival material in their own research. Megan uses a six W technique, who, what, when, where, and why as the five W's in journalism, but she added that six W and that is wonder. Wonder about the documents, wonder about the collections used. I mean, it's a bit of critical thinking for the kids, you know? So if you're an educator or you're a student, pay close attention because Megan is gonna blow your mind. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? All right. How are you, Dan? Um, I'm sitting in my basement, staring at my laptop, talking to you. That's how it's going right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so with this podcast, Megan, um, we just want to ask you some questions about what you do at the Ruther Library. Um, so can you tell us exactly what an outreach archivist does? Well, um, outreach archivist is probably going to differ from place to place. Uh, it tends to be kind of an umbrella term for the kind of work that I do. But when I think about it, it's got kind of three branches. Um, so the things that I do uh, that fall into the area of kind of traditional concepts of archival outreach um, are things like events, exhibits. Um, I help to coordinate that kind of work. Um, and oftentimes that's in partnership with other community organizations or parts of the university or, or our donors. I do some communication type stuff. So if you are ever interacting with our social media accounts for the Ruther, that's mostly me. Um, and also things like brochures, newsletters, stuff like that. Some of those I do myself and some is part of a team with the Ruther that I help to coordinate. And also if we're doing any kind of uh, like collecting initiative, et cetera, I help to promote that kind of work. But I spend a lot of time on kind of the third arm, uh, which is instruction. Um, so when we do that, a lot of that is uh, really specific conversations with instructors about the kinds of things they need students to learn. And then um, we design those things to be really active so that participants are um, working with the archives, kind of making their own discoveries. You know, traditionally, a lot of archives did just sort of a show and tell kind of tour. And those are fun, um, but they don't really let people get hands on. And we found that it really is a lot more useful for people to be able to 
to find their own path and make their own discoveries. So we do that kind of work. Sometimes that is with, uh, you know, undergraduate instructors, graduate instructors, both at Wayne State and at other institutions. Uh, but we've also really been increasing our work with organizations of K-12 teachers because um, they're asked to use primary sources too. Very cool. Very neat. So, so, so explain this, um, your program that you set up um, April. Yes. So that what is an acronym. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking that question. Um, so April stands for Archives and Primary Resource Education Lab. So it's April with an E. And um, the, the intent there is to really kind of bring together all of those instruction efforts that the Ruther has really been growing in the past couple years and to work on getting some data about how we're doing. We have worked with, uh, particularly in the last couple years, a lot of departments and areas of study that you might not expect would traditionally work with archives. So of course we work with history classes, sure. Um, but we've expanded our effort to work with um, things like edu um, education in particular. And Dan and I have been working on kind of a joint project that I think we'll talk about later um, with College of Ed. But of course, those are teachers in training. So it makes sense for us to work with them. English classes, particularly writing classes, it's really kind of a ripe territory for students to take some sources that they are you know, discovering for the first time these primary sources, writings that other people have done, and to then work them into their curriculum. We have been doing a really exciting project with um, an economics class over the past year or so that focuses on public health. Um, so we're using materials that relate to public food programs and looking at ways that these programs are trying to address people's attitudes towards food, their participation in these food programs. And right now, a lot of the students are really seeing how those things create today's outcomes in terms of health and how that ties to economic formulas and things like that, how there is this interdisciplinary thread that pulls through um, all these topics. And, and it's really exciting to see them realize that not everything is online, as much as, you know, sometimes we might expect that given the way our lives go, that there are so many studies that are, are relevant and useful to their work that just you cannot find through EBSCO. They're in archives. We're also looking to expand a little bit to other programs as well. So we've got great ideas for working with um, things like film classes and nursing. We had a little bit of talk about dance that didn't actually happen yet, but we are hoping to still do it. Um, so what we're finding is that this archive stuff, first of all, is applicable to a broad range of disciplines and really helps kind of open students' minds to the idea that uh, they are able to participate in research at a high level with archive stuff and that they are able to really explore what interests them and get inspired to become a part of the scholarly community, a part of the scholarly conversation. Um, so we've been really excited about that. And the other thing that we've done is to kind of gather data about the students that we're reaching and the impact that we're having. So we found that the vast majority of the students we work with are, it's their very first time in the archive. So seeing their reaction is pretty cool. What you're doing is so creative to bring in all these different departments to bring into archives, because usually we think is archives just historical research, but there's so much mm -hmm. more layers to it. So are they actually using real collections? Or are you copying collections and having them go look through them? Or so how, how kind of explain this whole process of what they, when they come into the Ruther? Yeah, that's, thank you for that question. Um, they do definitely use real collections. Um, uh, there's, there's no reason that they wouldn't use them just like anybody else would, any kind of professional scholar or, or anybody. So what we usually do is we kind of welcome the students and we show them around briefly. So the idea is that they're going to get a sense of the scale. 
at the Ruther, we have the on-site capacity for about 75,000 linear feet of material. And when I say that, and since we're in a podcast, it really doesn't mean anything, right? Like the human mind can't really compute that big a number. But when you see how much space that takes up, um, it helps them to understand kind of why you would need tools to help your research so that reinforces it when we try to use them later on. And they get to see kind of the staff working and the spaces where we work and, and get a sense for really how detailed this work can be, why it takes a while for things to get processed, um, why not everything is available online, those kinds of questions that a lot of students do have. And then we usually get right into the, the hands-on stuff. So what we do is before the students come in, we talk to the faculty or the teacher about what they need to learn, the sorts of things that they're doing in the class, how we can support their learning objectives. At that point, um, either I or whoever is helping, we do a bunch of research to find the stuff in our collections that's really going to highlight those things. And so when the students come in, we've got a selection of boxes out, and they do some work with this real stuff. They get hands-on. Um, oftentimes, they work in pairs so that they can have discussion, and then we all kind of talk together about the things that we're finding. Um, one cool thing that we've done um, with some law classes, actually, uh, is to talk about the New Bethel incident. Um, and we have this selection of stuff that covers a bunch of different perspectives. Um, What's the of New Bethel incident? <laughs> uh, so the New Bethel incident um, is something that happened um, right after the uprising, just a couple years after. So the uprising happened in 67, and we see a lot of changes in the city at that point. So you have um, a growing interest in black separatism in those years right after. So the Republic of New Africa was one of those groups, and they were meeting at a church and some police in the city decided to, you know, exactly how this happened is something that's up for the debate in the documents. And that's why it's, it's interesting for the students to parse. But the documents show different perspectives on exactly what happened next. Um, we know for certain that there was shooting on both sides and that, that some people were charged with attempted murder um, that had been uh, Republic of New Africa members. So what we do with the documents is show from the defense's side, from the prosecution side, from eyewitness reports, from reporting in the South End, Wayne State student newspaper, where they talk to eyewitnesses as well. And the students work together with all these different documents that show these different perspectives to have a conversation about what actually happened and how they can understand the different sources. Obviously, if you've got, you know, a, a police perspective, there are many reasons it's going to be different from the perspective of a member of the Republic of New Africa. So having that conversation is a way uh, for, for students to see how they can draw together all their understanding of the world, all the secondary sources they've read, and these different primary sources in the room um, as pieces of evidence to understand what happened a little bit better. That's a really cool one because we have so many different perspectives on a, on a one day, one event. Um, so it's it, sometimes we'll do things like work together to make a timeline. Um, so plot the different pieces of evidence and plot the different eyewitness reports and things like that and look at what happened in the case. There's uh, quite a bit of stuff that comes from our Damon Keith, not the Damon Keith collection itself, but the Damon Keith um, African-American legal history uh, collection of collections, because a lot of the major players, uh, both lawyers and judges are African-American. So their papers are with us and we can see all those different conversations that they're happening with that. So that one is really, really cool. And students really stretch their minds. They really have to kind of challenge their assumptions. Um, they have to look for answers that, that they didn't think they would have to seek to begin with. Um, that one's a really fun one. That's essentially what we do is that the students work together to understand this stuff. So it's not something where 
I or anybody else on staff who's helping would just tell them what to think or show them what to think. They do that discovery themselves and they work um, together with, you know, somebody across the table who might have a different document to understand the bigger picture together. That is the beauty of the archive, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really love doing that work. It's something that, you know, that once the, the kind of light bulbs go on, it really drives you to do more. So um, it is amazing when you all of a sudden you see the aha moments with some of yes. these students. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have students coming into the archive using the physical materials. Have you created any online presence for students who couldn't come into the Ruther Library? Yeah, I mean, I will say, to be fair, a lot of this stuff is in its infancy. Um, we are kind of like at the Ruther in the process of moving between different systems, um, but we are definitely building those things up. There are a couple of ways right now that people can find the stuff that we've worked on. So some of the stuff um, we've been building in Omeka, uh, which is some sort of document sets that are around themes of material that's in the Ruther library. So we've got some that are, some that are about um, uh, drum, so the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, that is a cool one. Uh, we've got some about Damon Keith, we've got a couple of different uh, ones in that area. And what we've done there is to pick out a very limited set of documents so that students or K-12 teachers can use these things in the classroom and have um, just a few things that interrelate together without having to go through all of the boxes and all of the folders. So it's not gonna be the full collections that are available there. It's a small sample that, that interact really closely. Uh, we also have some material that is in a kind of a newer portal um, called Michigan Memories, which uh, our stuff is in there. And then all the state repositories that are contributing to the Digital Public Library of America, their material is in there as well. Um, some of those collections are a little bit more complete. So there's a lot of stuff in there. But one of the cool things about that particularly for teachers that might want to use this, is that they can do things like search by format. So if you know you need a picture, you can search that way. Um, if you know that you need like an oral history recording, you can search that way. That site is relatively new and it's still kind of being populated. So look for more things to come up. And then we are also um, just starting to do some kind of uh, web exhibits through that portal as well. So those are two that we've got. I will say that doing research online is, is quite a bit different than doing it in person, in part because as a researcher, you really have to look for the context yourself. Context is super important in archives. So if you're researching the Dan Gladner papers, for example, um, you have to know that all the stuff in that collection is for some reason gathered up by Dan. Um, maybe he was working on it, maybe he was just curious about it, but that helps you to understand that body of materials. So if you are doing research, always look for that source information. Um, and sometimes that's going to be uh, in like file info or something like that. But always seek that out as a researcher, just a, a quick tip about things online. So it's different, but we are also really mindful that especially now, um, a lot of people are going to have to at least get their introduction uh, online. So we are growing those quite a bit. A lot of people don't realize how, how little in archives is actually available online right now. Um, it's a teeny, teeny, tiny portion. So if you're finding stuff online, um, just keep in mind that there's so much more that exists physically. And um, if you are not finding what you need, reach out to archives. We're very happy to help you find it or to find a way to get it to you. So um, don't think that that's all there is. There's way, 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 way more. That's true. That is very true. We always hear people saying, it's like, why isn't, is, it's all digitized, isn't it? It's all online, isn't it? And then when you do the math, it could take 
I did figure it out. My collection, the AFT collection, which covers about five to 6,000 linear feet. Mm -hmm. It could take me about uh, 20 years working on it consistently every single day and doing it archivally well. That, that's, that's the reason why we don't have everything on. We give you the juicy stuff, um, yeah. the stuff that we think is going to help research. But there's always the phone call or the email to inform us that we want more and we will give it to you, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to retire someday, right, Dan? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I got so much digitizing to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, listen, all right. You set up this great program to bring students in and starting these things. If another archivist is out there listening, or even even a professor or someone who who is in contact with archives and finds this program pretty um, amazing, um, what are the helpful hints you could tell them right now that's getting this thing set up? Yeah. Um, well, I will say, um, like I said, show show and tell kind of style um, work is it's fine for a tour, but if you really want people to to come away feeling confident and excited about doing their own research. You have to let people get hands on. You have to let them choose their own path and let themselves find inspiration in the records. Um, and it also helps them to remember what they learned when they leave, if they had an experience that spoke to them personally, which kind of comes to my next point, which is um, don't get the same stuff out for every audience. Uh, there are some, I think every archive has some material that they're like, this is a hit with most people. I'm going to get it out. But if you do a little bit of research about your group, uh, maybe talk to them in advance. Uh, if it's a class, talk to the faculty member, whatever it might be, um, about specifically what they've learned already or what interests them, that can really make a big impact too. So I often talk to the faculty about whatever reading the class will have done like the previous class, because if we have anything specific that challenges that reading or would surprise them to learn right after that reading, it's going to be a quick enough succession that they're going to feel surprised. They're going to be like, wow, this is this is a place where I can find information I can't get anywhere else. But it's also true that like if I know we're having a, a group come in from the UAW, then I'm going to get out stuff that is going to speak to them, that's going to ring some bells with them personally. We had a couple years ago a group that came in, I think it was from Chrysler health and safety department or something like that with UAW. And we had records about this organization. So they were really excited to see what their contemporaries were doing 30 years ago. That was something that, you know, they know what they do. They can compare it to the past. Um, Wayne State students do sometimes like to see things about student life, that kind of stuff where they can see themselves in the past and they can really hear and understand these people from the past speaking to them. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, I will say if you are, an archivist or a librarian in particular, and you're looking to kind of build this kind of program. I attended the Lolly ASC, um, which is Librarians Active Learning Institute uh, Archives and Special Collections. That's what that acronym means, but <laughs> it's kind of a half week workshop about running this kind of program. And even if you do a little bit of this work already, it is a great experience to kind of take some time set aside to really think about what you're doing and how it works and to work with other professionals trying to do the same thing to, to refine your skills and, and work up some, um, some methods to teach things in an active uh, classroom setting. So I recommend that. Um, I'm not really sure what the schedule is like this year for it. Um, it may be delayed, but um, it was good for me and I recommend it. They do have a, a separate session that's Librarians Active Learning Institute that's more focused at traditional library instruction. So that's an option too, if that's more up your alley. Um, but I, I found that to be really helpful. 
All there's right, also a cool. lot. Sorry, I had just thought of another thing, Dan. Of course you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are also a lot of resources online from people that are doing this kind of work specifically in archives. So um, teaching with primary sources, uh, it's you can find it. There's a website, but there's also um, hashtag in use on social media. Um, seek it out. People are sharing quite a bit about their work. Um, and sometimes it's more active. Sometimes it's a little bit less, whatever your comfort level might be. So check that stuff out too, if you're curious. There's a lot of great stuff going around. Absolutely. Never reinvent the wheel, just steal. Um, but <laughs> this comes up to... <laughs> <laughs> but this is a segue to something that we are actually, you and I are working on that's not reinventing the wheel. It's a brand new kind of thing that we came up with um, working with uh, the College of Education at Wayne State University. You want us to give us a quick rundown because you alluded to it earlier. And why don't you give us a quick rundown of exactly what we're doing because this is, again, teaching people about archives. Yeah. Uh, so over a couple of years working with classes, particularly those um, in the College of Ed, uh, we really spent some time thinking about how just about all state standards these days for social studies ask K-12 teachers to use primary sources, but a lot of teachers don't have a lot of specific training in how to do that, um, and a lot of school districts are essentially saying, here's your workbook packet, here's a picture of a primary source, etc. So I know that archives across the country are really interested in getting the broadest possible audience for their unique collections, and we're no different in that. So one of the things that we have been looking at is how do we bridge that gap between archives that are just kind of putting things out there and hoping that teachers find them and teachers who are really interested in getting, you know, dynamic and useful primary sources for their specific students, but who maybe don't know where to begin or like don't know any archivist personally. Uh, so what we're hoping to do is find a way to kind of create that community where teachers expertise and archivist expertise can coalesce for the best possible experience for students. Um, we have seen definitely that students who are able to use materials that speak to them are much more interested in doing that analysis. They can ask questions. They can really internalize what this stuff means for their understanding of, of the past and the future. So um, if you have Detroit kids, you probably would want for them to hear about Detroit kids from the past, right? To use these pieces of evidence and hear from past children. Uh, so Dan and I have started kind of working with those pre-service teachers at Wayne State. Uh, and one of the things that they do that's really cool in the class is the teachers are grouped together in, in small groups and they work uh, on a project that it uses primary sources um, to kind of craft an outline for a lesson plan. But a lot of times the teachers are coming from from different backgrounds. So you might have a teacher that is going to be a future gym teacher. You might have somebody that's gonna be a future uh, biology teacher, a future art teacher. And these teachers are working together to use the same primary sources to have this interdisciplinary approach um, that really gets students engaged in thinking about doing this kind of analysis. So it's, it's a really cool project. Um, we have some grants out right now, uh, hoping to hear back about those soon. But if you are a teacher, if you know teachers and they're interested in finding a way to use this primary stuff in classes to get those students excited um, about social studies, about doing this analysis, then um, watch our social media, et cetera. Hopefully we'll have some um, things in the coming months to share with you all about that. Um, do you have anything that I missed, Dan, that you want to add to our, our work on that? No, that pretty much covers it pretty well. We're <laughs> working with these pre-service <laughs> teachers to get them excited about using primary documents for their classrooms when they go into the classroom mm -hmm. um, so they can have a better understanding. The best thing I think 
also is that it's like we have a music teacher, you know, pre-service music teacher. He wants to go into music and he's looking at the historical documents. He sees nothing related to him, but then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. And we were talking about earlier, the aha moment. Yeah. Working with teachers who will never get their hands so-called, so-called getting dirty in archives <laughs> are realizing the beauty of using primary documents. And that's the best part. Yeah. So it expands their a, world. Yeah. We had, um, I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but there was one student that I think you saw his presentation where um, he was going to be a future gym teacher and he had really um, gotten excited about this image of a little kid who kind of lived in the Black Bottom area in the 30s, 30s, 40s, and he's holding his hands up uh, like he's going to be a boxer. And so he's realizing, the the pre-service teacher is realizing, first off, that this is kind of a, a gym-related thing to understand how prominent boxing was at the time and how important it would have been to these kids both um, in their play and culturally, but also realizing that his own grandfather could could be one of these kids, right? That this connection mm -hmm. ties to him personally too and mm -hmm. getting excited about sharing that with the students and creating the same kind of aha moment for them. So that's the kind of stuff that that we're seeing more and more and that is really, it's really heartening to see that there is uh this kind of stuff possible when people um, make those connections between classroom efforts and, and archives. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it grows your community. You yeah, oh. totally. All right. Last question. This okay. is a good one. So oh. when you return to the Ruther, whenever that might be, <laughs> what are you more, most excited about getting your hands dirty again with? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we probably, well, Hmm. It's going to depend a little bit on how classes look um, in the next couple of terms, because I think there is something really magical about the students being able to be hands-on with the stuff. But I think more likely when I very first get back um, is going to be kind of working to grow the types of things people can access online at a distance. It might be a little time before people are comfortable traveling and things like that. So growing our options for people in that category. Um, we have some really cool stuff in the pipeline that I think some of our collection archivists have digitized, so working with them to maybe make some document sets or web exhibits so that people are able to get a little bit better sense of what we do have in person. And then hopefully when it's time again, we'll be able to host everybody in person for, for their continued research. Awesome. I can't wait to get back and start doing this stuff with you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Dan. All right. Bye. Bye. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Sometimes I've like said it so many times that I'm like, I don't know, is this boring for people? I've said it already. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad blah, I said blah, it blah, 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 <laughs> blah.
get over it. You're not going to have your eight-ply toilet paper. Right. Artisanal toilet paper. I don't know. Oh, you haven't been yet? I only went to um, the one on 8 Mile once. Yeah, I only went there to Ada, Ada, sweetie. No, I, I'm, I'm on the talking, okay? Yes, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. See, you're multitasking here. Mm-hmm. You're doing your job, homeschooling, you know. Who says you can't do it all? Day drinking. No, no, no. <laughs> and when should Megan you can hang up if you want we're just talking business <laughs> okay I'm gonna go eat some macaroni then bye okay All right, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs>